All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part two of our smashing show today with Anthony Peak. I bet he's known to some of you. And this show obviously has to be called Cracking Reality. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, um, just to let you know, breaking news, um, if yep. you go into my Facebook site, the new book cover of the new relaunch of my first book, because we're re- my publisher is relaunching it with a new cover and everything is and it's happened now just happened now yeah yeah there you go huh yeah (laughs) i think the synchronicity is too good absolutely isn't it just i've been waiting for this for months as well um (laughs) no so really good exactly well so uh, first a comment i'm gonna have lawrence caruna caruana on and we're gonna address what you said about we're gonna have a show precisely folks about all the suppressed scriptures that didn't make it into the uh-huh. accepted narrative so uh, check out that show folks now back to you anthony you say this is the zeitgeist now the time is uh, ready to entertain these thoughts but think about it if you are hacking the matrix one could expect a blowback mm-hmm. a backlash because there is this ancient thought in some currents that of course the abrahamic religions they are the only ones who think that in terms of a beginning and an end and everything goes to hell so the apocalyptic view but everyone else talks about cycles and i've wondered what is it that makes the enlightened civilizations go under and one interesting heretic thought is that when enough people you know the critical uh, uh, what do they call it critical, critical mass, mass yeah mm-hmm. realizes the scheme that's when it collapses and resets so if that is true i'm going to order uh, the black uh, the ba- uh, the deep state to come and, and get you because you kind of <laughs> you're kind of <laughs> making the end come <laughs> I don't want to live in the, at the new beginning, if you see what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Many times I've been told I need to be careful. Um, yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> uh, because Spoken like a true Gnostic. And I don't really care because so so they might do things to me. So I just go back and start again. You know, so I just have another go. Yeah, but what about this idea that if if enough people realizes it, it kind of the kind of the game oh, becomes moot. Oh yeah, right? there's, to... there's a very fascinating concept. There's a writer called Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. Malcolm Gladwell came up with the concept of the tipping point. Right. And it's again the same kind of thing. If if enough people believe in something it will happen. Now, one of the things that has been a frustration to me, or it was, I'm getting less frustrated by it now, is something that you touched upon right at the start of the interview. How is it that more people are not aware of my work? Mm. And everybody that comes into my work and, and is introduced to my work, and literally your reaction today is the reaction of every single radio interview I do. They always <laughs> sit back and they go, Oh my God, how did I not know about this? Yes. So what it's doing is it's almost drip feeding out. It's as if it knows that it's got to do it slowly. Mm. And it's it's building up. And over recent months, 
the groundswell is getting greater and greater and greater. And the only thing I can think of is that I've been through this so many times within the game that my daemon, each time we get closer to it, and I don't know whether I'm at the end game and we're going to work this time round or it's going to be in the hundred, the next hundred attempts, but we're going to get there. Hmm. And so I don't really mind that because I'm not in it for money. You know, you never become a writer hmm. for money and it's just not worth and it. And it, it ruins it. Absolutely. You know, it's not what I want to do. Yep. I love doing things like having discussions like I'm having with you now. This is what shakes my tree. Same here. It's having intellectual discussions. And I find it frustrating sometimes that and this is why I'm going to thank you now for this, mm-hmm. that it is unusual for me to be able to go as deeply down the rabbit hole as we're going now. I have to normally speak in ciphers. I normally have to... Allegories, yes. And allegories. And I have to make it as simplistic as possible because most people don't get it. They don't see the nuances that you're... Yeah, but if you you think you're in trouble, imagine Jesus or Buddha. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it is, isn't it? You know, and it's the idea of when you are making changes and... You know, I, I, I have followers and I know and I joke about this and with a couple of friends of mine, I joke that I could suddenly don a purple robe and set up a cult. Now, because one of the things that you haven't seen, oh, but you, you need to check up is mm. what I'm like in front of an audience. Mm. It's, it's uncanny. So you feel their energy? Oof. Mm. I did an event in New York in front of 300 people about 12 years ago. And at the one point, I felt that I told them to stand up, sit down and part in the middle. It would have happened. The electricity was phenomenal. And it's because I I imbue my enthusiasm to other people. And they they know that there's no vanity in me. I'm not vain. I'm not showing off. You know, it's my enthusiasm because I really am interested in ideas and thoughts. And people that get involved in my work, they become really involved in it and they really enjoy it because – we're an open society. We're not, we're not trying to bigger call. Cause I, I've said many times I could get much more acceptance if I claimed I was channeling all this from the planet Thog. Yeah. I could pretend I was a channeler, but I don't pretend I'm a channeler because I'm not. This information is not being downloaded into my brain from anywhere. It's because I'm reading extensively academic papers mm. and all I'm doing is because I'm in the unique position, I have a very, very good memory. Mm. So I tend to, if I read something, I tend to remember it. So what tends to happen is then when I read something else 10 years later, I'll revert immediately back to something I read 10 years ago and make the link. Mm. I'm very fortunate on that. It's it's a gift I have. No, but you said it in the beginning. You said uh, you tried to describe the atmosphere when you have a cozy lecture at Watkins. That's what you're talking about here, whether you are talking to thousands of people in, in a hall or you're doing these intimate, it's just like the concerts. It's just like, just like music. Mm-hmm. You can have unplugged acoustic cozy concerts, uh, a few people, or you can be on a huge scene. And what the musicians do in terms of creative outlet and interacting, making love with the audience in terms of energy, mm-hmm. is exactly the same thing you do. Only you do it on another strata, namely the frequencies of ideas. So it's just the same phenomenon. That's an interesting analogy. I like that one. Yeah. And, you know, the, there is there is something special about the atmosphere at Watkins. I really enjoy 
those small intimate groups and i have a small intimate group of friends i have here mm. and unfortunately because of lockdown we we haven't been able to meet up for months but we still meet yeah. up on zoom and everything else but zoom doesn't work in the same way you don't no. have that kind of tactile warm feedback yes that you can't in esoteric terms you can't create an egregore using this you have to be physically together or, or like i usually say you can't do a ritual via zoom better point yes better so, point so uh, speaking of better points there is one very important there's two very important points we we cannot have this discussion without touching these two points i'll take the one first but let's reserve sufficient time for the second two right. the first one is we've agreed that on a collective level maybe there is a question of if enough people wake up and become free Uh, then uh, reality will be formed according to that, which is why they have to be suppressed and, and cracked down on. So that we understand, that's the collective level. But you now mentioned solipsism, mm. and that's interesting because then we go into the magical paradigm, and there is this idea, which is uh, old, of course, nothing new under the sun, only expressed in different language than the modern language we use, technical language. And that's that, okay, so... If I can manipulate my own reality, and from everything you said, from all the research, all philosophy tradition, you can, then you can question, maybe, because I, I'm prone to give up on the collective, honestly, <laughs> when I watch the world, so maybe, if there is such a thing as a multiverse, maybe instead of, you know, the whole world waking up and making paradise on earth, maybe I can just navigate the right choices so that in my timeline, mm. stuff gets better. And then I depart from the timeline of <laughs> the lost soul, so to speak. So uh, maybe I can navigate myself out of this dystopian corona reality and into an outcome where stuff gets better. Well, if And that's the form of solicism, isn't it? It is, but effectively, if we use the analogy of, of the, my, my cheat, the, the concept, by the way, I've been putting forward, it is called cheating the ferryman. Ah, wonderful. And we'll touch on yeah. what, what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll pick up on it straight away. But I'll, no, let's explain cheating the ferryman first, what yeah. I mean, because my next book, my first book when it came out was called Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die. That's not what I wanted to call it. But as you know, if you're a... Um, a A person that, that's published in the traditional method, you have a publisher who comes to you, gives you an advance, and then they give you an advance to write the book, and they control everything. So they decide what you're going to call yeah. your book, when it gets published, what the cover's going to be like. Mm. They will involve you, but effectively, ultimately, they will decide. Okay. They, they are the record companies of old. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Um, and they are. Mm. But it means that you don't have to worry. I don't, you know, when I, when my publishers public my books, literally all I do is I write it. They go away. They have all the problems of having it printed, having it distributed. For instance, my publisher, Arcturus, for the first book are wonderful at distribution. You know, they've, they've got my books everywhere, mm. you know, books right across the world, you know, which is incredible. Mm. So there's the advantage. Whereas if you're self-published, you, you don't have that freedom. You, you can't do that. But it does mean you have a degree of control. Yeah. 
but going back then, they, they wanted to call it that. I wanted to call it Cheating the Ferryman. Now, my publisher now, it was so desperate for my next, but I've had three or four publishers that publish my works now, all of whom, and there's a fifth publisher that are really desperate in America to get my work at the moment, which I'm negotiating with at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I have faith with the first publisher that picked me up. But I did, and they said, we want to find another book from you. And I said, yes, I want to write an update of all my ideas that were put forward in that first book, taking into account all the things I've learned in that 15 year period. But I want to wait a minute. Which book is this that you wanted to call Cheating the Fireman? Right. The first book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Signs of What Happens When We Die, which Mm. came out in 2006. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's about 75,000 copies have been sold across the world with that. It's into most major European languages. Okay. Mm. Um, But I want to rewrite that using the hypothesis that I came up with then, applying all the things I have learned that we've been talking about today, the much broader ideas. Yes. Because when I first wrote the book, I had not had the advantage of linking with as many people as I have. You know, there's literally tens of thousands of people. There are over 10,000 people involved in my work on Facebook alone. Wow. And these people are active. These aren't people that just are my Facebook friends. These are active people that will communicate with me. I only set up my YouTube channel really effectively about three or four months ago when I relaunched it. I've already got... You, you'll get more subscriber after this show, I can tell you. Yeah, that. and I, I've yeah. already around about three and a half thousand, mm. you know, um, and it's every day more. And every day I will get at least three or four emails from people around the world saying, I've just discovered your work. It's blowing my mind. And they never go away. They don't just then get bored with it. They want to know more. Okay. Yeah, but before you get to your philosophical point about cheating the ferryman, can people join this Facebook thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can follow me on Facebook. But as well as that, now, this is quite important. And I think it's going to be good, Al, if we do a reversal of this, which I'll, I'll talk to you a bit later, mm-hmm. is that I also, on YouTube, I do two podcasts that I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, every Monday afternoon at three o'clock, UK time, mm-hmm. I do what's called uh, Anthony Peak Consciousness Now, APCH in con, in conversation, mm. which is an informal hour and a half, two hours, like this one, mm. where I have a guest who could be one of my readers, it could be a scientist, it could be a researcher, it could be a fellow writer, or it could be somebody whose work just interests me, and we just talk like this. Okay, cool. That is then goes out live on Facebook, literally Facebook Live, and it goes out on Facebook Live via Zoom. Then the next day it's uploaded onto my YouTube channel. Mm. Okay, and then people could have got it permanently. And you just go into YouTube, just put in Anthony Peak, you'll find me. Mm. Then every month, every second Sunday of the month, I have just Anthony Peak in uh, Anthony Peak Consciousness Hour, which is a more formal me interviewing somebody like as a proper interview rather than a discussion. Mm. And I have some of the world's leading researchers that are, that are involved in that normally academics. Mm. And we have some really fascinating discussions, but this is building up and more and more people are getting involved in this. And now on Facebook, on my Facebook, on my YouTube site, I've got all the historical ones I've done over the last seven or eight years. So there are about 70 in cons on there. And there are already about eight, 17 or 18 uh, of the incons and about yeah, 60 of the consciousness hours and around about 16 or 17 of the incons. Mm. And that's growing. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to have you as a future guest on incon because oh. I think we can we can continue with this. 
I mean, for instance, on Monday, I have joining me um, a guy called Professor Imran Barouche, mm-hmm. who is a professor of psychology at, a, at one of the Canadian universities. And his work is phenomenal about the way in which we need to destroy the materialist reductionist model. Oh, I this love guy it. Is, I love this it. guy is so fascinating. Get this. This guy is so bright. Yeah. He, he's, he's a brilliant psychologist. But in order to understand quantum physics, he did two years of a postgraduate mathematical course in quantum physics so he could argue the quantum physics with the quantum physicists. Wow. He, he's got a brain the size of a planet. He wrote a book um, called Transcendent Mind, Rethinking the Science of Consciousness with um, Julie, Dr. Julia Mossbridge. Hmm. which begs steal or borrow a copy of that book. It is absolutely unbelievable. Okay. And it was published by the American Psychology Association. It was published by um, the American Psychological Association. That's how we're starting to break through now into the mainstream. Wow. Okay. So he's a future guest. I've got Dr. David Luke, who's doing research into dimethyltryptamine, mm-hmm. joining me. We've got lots of people, but there's a lot going on. So, join and i definitely want you as a future guest we will um, we, we'll talk about that off air but now cheating the ferryman okay <laughs> in in ancient remember my hypothesis i'm a member or i was a member a professional member of the my first academic paper in fact my only academic peer-reviewed academic paper appeared in 2004 in the uh, the academic periodical of the the international institute of near-death studies Right. Okay, and it was right. peer reviewed by a guy called uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson, who's professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia. Okay, mm. now he's famous. He's famous, and he wrote. He actually turned around and said, in the lead into my first book, he turned around and said that Anthony Peake's concept is the most revolutionary and mind blowing hypothesis of your immortality I have ever come across which I thought was really wonderful for him to say. Yeah, and, and Irvin Laszlo has given you kudos, I saw. Oh, I, I wrote a book with Laszlo as well. That's um, amazing, man. I wrote a book called Immortal Mind with him, um, where we discussed about consciousness outside of the body. Hmm. Um, indeed, there is a TV program at the moment that is causing a lot of sensation uh, called Afterlife, which is a Netflix TV series. Oh, I heard about that one, yeah. Okay. Laszlo and I wrote that book. 10 years ago. Wow. Um, well, we didn't write the book. What I'm saying so, is... So you haven't gone under the radar. That's the thing. You've gone under the radar, but everything you do no, 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 no. is out but, there. But what's important... <laughs> and people have encountered it. But Yeah, but what's important to understand is my link, though, with that TV program, oh, yeah? uh, that program, is yeah. that what I'm saying is that Laszlo and I wrote a virtually identical book oh, 10 see. years ago that the TV series was based upon. In other words... Yeah, but you know you know the theory that in nobody's... Uh, as soon as someone realizes it, three, four, five, six, seven other people at the same time in the world realizes it. Yes, they do. They do. But we were 10 years ahead. Yeah. Um, but yes, but I take the point. It takes as 10 the, years to get onto Netflix, so... Uh, yeah. As there is, for instance, um, you, you will read a lot about Dr. Lanza and his book, Biocentrism. Right. And if you go on the web, he is the biggest genius the world's ever seen. Uh, he, you know, he's, he should be given the Nobel Prize. He's everything, everything else. His book, Biocentrism, came out three years after my first book came out. It's virtually identical. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but he's getting, but, you know, it's the way of the world. It's the mm, way of the yeah, world. Yeah. But anyway, going back, so cheating the ferryman. Ancient Greeks, when somebody died... What they would do is, for the corpse, they would take little coins called oboli, 
and they'd place two of the coins over the eyes or they'd place one underneath the tongue when the person was buried. Mm. The reason they did this was they believed that when the person was dead and they found themselves at the, on the other side, they would find themselves on the edge of a river and throughout through the mists of the river would appear Caron the boatman. And Caron would come in his boat and they would pay Caron money, the Obelai, to ferry them across the sticks to the land of the dead. I argue that we cheat the ferryman. We never pay him his obelai because the one thing we misunderstand about death and approaching death is one factor that, again, I think I'm the only person that's pointed out, time perception. Mm. We assume that we die in consensual time. That is the, the time that we all share. I argue, and I do the neurology of this, at the point of death, there are certain neurotransmitters like glutamate that are released in the brain that cause time to slow down. It causes time to dilate. So in which case, in the last seconds of your life, you can live a whole lifetime. You can mm. live a numerous lifetimes. And of course, these are all known for the moody traits. They are things that are known in the near-death experience. In the near-death experience, they turn around, people will say, Time seemed to slow down for me when I was dying. Other people call something called a panoramic life review. My life flashed before my eyes. Yeah. All these things link into cheating the ferryman. Mm. Fantastic. So, but, but oh, I get this. How do you link it to the original question is, is lost in, in all the details we took? Um, could you go for it again? Yeah. So to sum up, recap. There is uh, the conflict between the collective uh, reality and how we can transmute reality collectively. And there is also the, you know, the personal magician view where you kind of, you, you create a new timeline for yourself where you think that you can maneuver out of the collective reality and into a better, oh, I see. you know, like not just a magician in terms of 3D, but actually a cosmic magician where you can pave the road ahead so to speak to get out of this hellhole <laughs> and if if there's such a thing as a multiverse i'm thinking hmm maybe there's something to it your take yeah absolutely well the multiverse is something that has fascinated me for many years both in terms of my interpretation of quantum physics and also in terms of my instinctive feeling about these things and of course the multiverse concept again came out of quantum physics over the mystery of schrodinger's cat and the idea that if particles um if the wave function is collapsed if the wave function is not observed does the uh does a cat for instance end up both being alive and dead at the same time once it's not observed um and this was taken by a guy called Hugh Everett III in his PhD thesis in 1957. And he suggested that the wave function does not collapse, it continues, um, and that a new universe is created every time that something happens within the world. So therefore, there's a multiverse which is continually splitting billions of times a second into alternate realities of itself. And if this is the case, this does genuinely mean something we were talking about earlier on, that every outcome exists somewhere. And indeed, interestingly enough, the, uh, there is a slight majority of quantum physicists and cosmologists these days that believe that uh, the many worlds interpretation is the only real rational explanation 
for a lot of the things we interpret. I'm thinking of people like David Deutsch and particularly a, a guy called Max Tegmark, who is a Swedish uh, quantum physicist based at Princeton, I think, in the States. And he has this wonderful model, which he calls the, the, quant the quantum suicide experiment, uh, <laughs> where he applies quantum physics in a way that I've done to suggest that we are all effectively immortal. And he uses that argument um, to say that uh, it can be applied. So it's quite fascinating stuff. So we may just be able to stake a way out of here for ourselves, if nothing else. Absolutely. And of course, everybody goes with us within their own broken down personalities. They all follow us into whichever alternate universes we create by our actions. Hmm. Remember the movie? Um, there was a movie called uh, uh, The Butterfly Effect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Sliding Doors. It's a theme that a lot of movies have played with. Um, Twelve Monkeys, yeah. which is another one which was quite intriguing. Sure, but but I don't get it because if I myself, if I split the timeline, so to speak, mm. so that I go into, wouldn't another person be, be go into another timeline? And obviously that person would still be in my timeline, but it would be a version of that person that wasn't the same as the... When I yeah, left, it, it would be exactly. It would be still that person, but of course, the, that person would remain in. Well, in one universe, they'd remain in that that timeline, but in your universe, they remain in yours. Um, and if if the many worlds interpretation is correct, which I think it, it, it really the law of parsonomy says that you know really there seems to be a ridiculous. Where are all these universes coming from? Where are they being created from? Um, so sometimes I find that it's a little bit stretching uh, logic yeah. but they do believe that um the this is how quantum computers supposedly are going to be working because quantum computers quantum computing or things called qubits are quantum bits that do the calculations in in multiple universes and i think i'm right in saying that google have already designed a quantum computer so this does seem to suggest that this may be the case or, of course, it could be we're applying string theory here and that, of course, mm. that really there are not four, there are not the, the four dimensions of space time. But in fact, there are I think it's 12 dimensions of space time, um, all of which are in uh, are in are enfolded within each other. Mm. So if I create a path for myself um, and. Uh, and I go into a more optimal condition among a better potential of my future um i mean you you wouldn't know if anyone was was following you or not i mean and, and i mean it's a question of what is you know the, the well it, on top of that just very quickly it also yeah. means that there are versions of the you that exist in other people's universes as well yeah exactly Maybe versions of me have lived before because who's to say reincarnation? I mean, reincarnation, of course, we, we discussed can we reincarnate backwards in time? Can we reincarnate on other planets? But there's also a question of reincarnating in several dimensions, you know, mm. that it's that uh, endless. But that reminds me also of, uh, you know, eternity. What is that? I mean, if universe, I, I propose that it can be closed and open at the same time. It can be closed in the sense that if you go far enough in one direction, you come out in the other. That's in terms of uh, linear space. Mm. But you have the old ancient Tibetan notion that if you go zoom in into the minuscule things, mm. 
it can also be coherent in that you come out in the macrocosmos, if you see what I mean. That's a harder one. This this is a very important point you're making here, because one of the, the points I'll be making in the new book is that there is a vast difference between the smallest possible bit of space that we can detect in any shape or form with any form of our our, our optical machinery or our using, um, I don't know, microscopes. Tools. Uh, yeah, and tools. tools. Let's lose that term. Mm. And what is the smallest possible thing that can be? And again, it was I was talking about this, the Planck length. And it's somewhere, I think, in the factors, I think of either seven or 12 factors of size between the smallest thing we can know about so far and the smallest thing that is. And that's a huge amount of space that things could be in. So rather like we were discussing about other dimensions, so there's also the dimensions of size. And it's quite intriguing. And, of course, this is where David Bohm, who was an American particle physicist, who was very much a a follower of Einstein, who again believed in the hidden variables idea that at a deeper level of reality, um, sense comes back and that quantum physics is literally just the ripples on a pond Mm. that we are interpreting because there's depths within a pond. And he argued that there's something called the implicate and explicate orders. And in this, he argued, and it's really quite interesting here, that that everything is enfolded within everything else. It's very much an, an Eastern tradition idea that everything contains everything. So effectively, within a teardrop in your eye is the Andromeda yeah. galaxy. Sufis, Hades, uh, ancient Greeks. And, and it is our other concept of eternity, because if it's a closed space, but not closed in that you come to a border, you just continue on the other side, whether you go in a direction or you go in size. Then it's a closed space, but but there could be holes into other dimensions, and that's the way it's it's open, if you see what I mean. I mean, free energy, zero point, has to withdraw that energy from another dimension, not from this. Zero zero point energy must be coming from somewhere, and it was a point you made earlier on. And, of course, the, the, the question of zero point energy is a great mystery because if you take particles particularly something, I think there's a a form of of helium that you can take down to within, I don't know, a millionth of a degree of absolute zero, 273.15 degrees uh, Celsius or just above zero Kelvin. Mm. And that is so cold that literally everything stops. The energy itself ceases to be because there's no movement between the atoms. But the issue is you take down helium-7, I think it is, down to that level, there is still energy coming from somewhere. And that energy, it's quite interesting why they believe this. You know, It's to do with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Mm. And it's the idea that you you cannot know the, the, uh, the, the location or momentum of a subatomic particle. But if you're in a situation where everything is effectively frozen solid, you are in a position where you contravene Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Mm. And that is impossible. So therefore, again, there seems to be energy coming from somewhere. There's cells, something called the Van, Van der Waals effect, which seems to suggest zero point energy as well. So there is something, the Casimir effect is something else again that sh- seems to give the impression that, that there is an energy form. And if if what is taking place here is that empty space itself is not a vacuum, but a plenum, it's full of energy. And this energy 
seems to suggest that there are, there are other realities that are burgeoning around us. Exactly. But then again, we have we have virtual particles, don't we? Within modern mm. within the modern standard model of quantum physics, there has to be things called virtual particles, and these virtual particles come into existence and out of existence from nowhere. Mm. And finally, the, the ancient Greeks called the energy in a so-called vacuum for eons. So they claimed that uh, it was both particles and waves, actually. So they have a model that still works if you uh, translate it, and you're the perfect guy to translate such a model, by the way. Mm. <laughs> you should look into that. I will. I will. Who was this? I know Democritus was the guy that came up with the atomic theory, with the idea of atoms, but... yeah. But I, yeah, Demo- Democrat is one of them. I'll I'll give you that info after the show, so we don't okay. lose valuable time. No, I'd be very interested to do that mm. because I think that the ancient Greeks. I'm very particularly interested in the pre-Socratics and the pre-Socratic philosophers. That's it. It's the Pythagoreans who did this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the pre-Socratic philosophers um, are intriguing, and and you may be interested to know that um, my my as you know, one of my books has just come out in Greek, and another book will be coming out in Greek. Uh, my first book is due out in Greek in a few weeks' time, and one of the things we're planning to do is recreate an event we did last a- April two years ago. Uh, we created recreated Plato's Cave. Mm. In a, a a group of caves in um, in Dracolo in uh, the Midlands of the UK, and we're planning to take that experiment, uh, take that exercise, and do it in the original location that Plato placed uh, his <laughs> idea of the allegory of the cave. It's a, <laughs> called the Cave of Vari, right. which is uh, just outside Athens, just outside Athens. Yeah, and look yeah. at that. Um, and you, you could consider Pythagoras' cave too on Samos. I could. I've been to Samos a few times. <laughs> but, um, but the real cave is not the one that the tourists are informed about. Ah, right. Are they not? That's another one. It's always the case. I can even give you the directions. <laughs> oh, one day one day I will do that. Yeah, because we find my, my, uh, my publisher down there is very taken with my work. And because he has contacts down there, he's, he's quite an influential character in his own right. And he knows the tourist board and everything else. So the plan is to, to recreate what we did at Dracolo Wonderful. in April 2018 and do it down there yeah that's just great uh, you know the those guys the initiates so-called pre-socrates mm-hmm. they had the cave wasn't just randomly selected as a thing because uh, plato knew this he was an initiate because what they had to do at a certain point of their elevation in their initiation was to do a incubation in a cave mm-hmm. hesha style incubation where you lie if you read uh, dr peter kingsley's book reality you'll hear his groundbreaking cracking of parmenides experience really yeah where he explains you know the prophet original prophet had nothing to do with predicting the future a prophet was one who had the ability to travel to the other side but not just that because any random person can do that uh, given the right circumstances, but also return with something that is objectively applicable, mm. not subjectively, but that is valid for all. And that's where we depart from channelers and all these people who, who you know, is just subjective stuff. Mm. This is something, it's a tool that can be used for all. They said it was a gift from the gods. Like in Parmenides' case, he got this from a goddess. Uh, but this is a, a detour. We, we don't have time for this because I have two very important things to discuss with you okay. before we hang up. Okay. Let's start with number one. Yep. That's uh, what I call the Corona computer game. 
now, this uh, model I'm giving you is a metaphor, but you'll get it immediately. Hitherto in life, maybe with the exception of the fall of the antediluvian civilization, but since then and until today, on Earth, there's been multiple video games going on. One has been playing Lara Croft, another has been playing Axis and Allies, another has been playing Sims, another has been playing Civilization, it's, and so on and so forth. And no, no matter where on Earth you've been, if you didn't like the game, you could always move to an area, escape to an area where the other game was going on. Maybe, maybe giving you better play uh, uh, look. Now, for the first time, we have a reality sinking upon us. It's like one big computer game has gobbled up all the other computers. It's like when Agent Smith goes rogue and eats up the <laughs> other agents. And everybody has to relate to this corona thing, no matter where you are. You can be in the most remote areas of Himalaya. Mm-hmm. And the same will go for, you know, with the vaccines and everything else, the travel ban. This is exceptional in known human history. Mm-hmm. Comment? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that really intrigues me is about about coronavirus is its ubiquity. And I use the term ubiquity quite precisely here because one of my favorite novels is Ubik by uh, Philip K. Dick. And in this, he talks about a product that becomes ubiquitous. But here we have um, an illness or a psychological state or a belief system that has become ubiquitous right across the planet. And it is the first time ever that there is nowhere to escape from this. And this has to be significant. And And I'm sure it is going to change the way we think and the way we are. And I'm not sure in what way yet. I mean, for instance, one of the things that um, I had discussed in the past was my idea, you know, that the daemon, the daemon is the person that's lived your life many times and that the daemon will guide you to, to help you to avoid dangers or sometimes will put you into dangers in order for you to learn. OK, because it's working. It works on the principles of a chess game. Mm. So it's positioning you in order to position you in a better place maybe in two years time but at the moment it's putting you through a great deal of pain because it knows you have to get there now the question has to be that if we are living our lives over and over again it means that all our daemons are all aware and have been aware for our whole lives that this covid situation is going to occur Mm. so the question i was asking myself was why did our daemons not warn us that this was going to take place because I've got evidence of people whose daemons save people from car crashes and all kinds of extraordinary circumstances. But the answer is there is nowhere you could have escaped on this planet from COVID. Mm. So your daemon could not have located you somewhere else in order for you to escape from the pandemic because you couldn't. Mm. So all our daemons now for, for the first time are probably tuning in collectively to think, well, how does humanity collectively deal with this? So now it's a multiplayer game against Mm. the AI, not just a solo game anymore. Yes. And if if you extrapolate what I was saying earlier on about the way in which subatomic particles, not subatomic particles, but large molecules are now showing wave particle duality and showing that they are affected by... Um, the act of observation or the act of measurement, 
We are, I think by my calculations, the largest molecules that are showing this are now around about one third the size of a virus. Now, COVID is a virus. Now, there is no upper limit yet that we've come across where this effect doesn't take place. So could it be that viruses themselves are actually more like viruses that we understand to be in computers mm. because viruses are very strange things there's a big debate as to whether viruses are alive or yeah. not yeah. but what they definitely are are genetic machines mm. that seem to use information in order to change themselves because we know that they change and could this be what the clue is that what we're dealing with here is more of a computer virus that is playing itself through the game mm. So um, I, I hope it's not because they're locking down the game that this is happening. I mean, you could go to a dark place with this. You could, indeed, <laughs> you could. But then again, because, you know, because they, you know how they mutate and get out of hand, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and of course. It, so it could be a black death situation eventually. It, it could be, and the thing is, you know, you could argue, you know, James Lovelock and his Gaia principle. The hard Gaia principle suggests that the planet Earth, or whatever the planet Earth is in our scenario mm. that we've been discussing here, we we itself, we collectively as human beings are a virus mm. on the planet's ecosystem. Yeah. In which case, what happens to a body when it feels it's being attacked by a virus? It creates antibodies. So we could end up being the idea that co coronavirus and COVID is in fact an antibody that's trying to destroy the virus, which is us. Yeah, from Mother Earth. In order for the the greater body of the planet to survive, yeah. which is terrifying. Chilling thought, huh? It is indeed. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's... Uh, I was going to say take this down to Earth, but it's actually uh, as outlandish <laughs> as everything else we discuss. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break my rule for the second time today. I think it just speaks to the guest I have that I'm doing this. Rule breaking, <laughs> I always like that. Yeah, yeah. and I'm going to be personal again. So uh, I'm going to tell you an experience I had, and I want you to take on it because I know you're big on out-of-body experience mm. and uh, not just OBA, but NDA too. So here's what happened. I had a spontaneous one once. Uh, so it, it, this was not an arranged one. It was a spontaneous one. Okay. And I'll make a long story short for those who, uh, for my listeners who want more details, you can check out uh, Alex Sakiris, Skeptico, his interview with me where I, I go more into depth. But here's the gist of uh, the reason I mentioned this to you is that uh, I was in a dark room. I was lying on a bed. And by the way, I didn't have feet. It was like, you know, the Aladdin lamp spirit. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of felt like that. And I actually, I mentioned a teacher I had, and he said to me, that's a confirmation because according to the ancient sources, when you're out, out of the body, you do not have feet. I didn't know this. Okay. But anyway, that's not the thing. The thing is, next to me was a mirror. And I suddenly got the idea, what happens if I look? into the mirror because we all know the principles of light right if i have a substance atoms molecules cells light reflects in the mirror it's it's the reflection principle it's not the absorption principle it's not the transparent principle it's a reflection principle but if i don't have a mass there should be nothing in the mirror mm -hmm. uh, now i didn't do all this logical thinking right there and then but i had the wits to look in And guess what I saw? Go on. I saw, do you remember in the old days, cameras and stuff? I saw a 
negative of myself. Wow. Actually, of everything. And you, wow, indeed, because what happens when you see a negative is that, for example, the eyes becomes very spooky. Mm-hmm. You you know how eyes look in negative. So mm-hmm. I got so shocked from what I perceived that I got thrown down into uh, my body because obviously fear interrupts that thing. It's the survival instinct. So so that ruined my exploration. But for those brief seconds that I gazed into that mirror, there was a negative reflection. Now this wow. made sense to me. I start to you know the discussion we have today could kind of oh, yeah. I, I, I won't say anything just your comment to to that well this could be very very intriguing because my initial reaction there was well the first thing that jumps to mind is is light has always fascinated me the illuminate the illumination that people have when they have out of body experiences or near death experiences what is the light source Mm. Where are the photons that are illuminating that scenario? And I would argue that probably they're a form of biophotons. Now, people like Fritz Albert Pop, and in fact, somebody you must get on this show is an associate of mine, a Hungarian gentleman called Dr. Istvan Bokken, who's doing some fascinating work with biophotons. Really, you have to spell the last name uh, B O K K E N. Okay. Noted. Okay. Okay. And he's a fascinating guy and he's, he's, he's really doing leading edge stuff. Now, the idea there is that the, the light is somehow an inner light that comes out. Now, it, again, I've been long intrigued by this because within the um, esoteric tradition of the Greek Orthodox religions or the Orthodox religions is something called tabor, Taboric light. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, an inner light that they discuss. And again, very much some of the apocryphal gospels and apocryphal writings of the earthy or the orthodox christians very much wrote about this taboric light which again light features very much in the sufi tradition as well Mm. now in which case what is this kind of light and it was only when you said about the negative and i thought could this be light that is anti-light rather like we have um anti-matter in the sense that it's reversed Mm. And if it's then reversed, that's what you would see. You would see a negative image of yourself because they're antiphotons. Now, again, with antiphotons, this gets very intriguing because, of course, one of the great mysteries of the creation of the universe after the Big Bang is what happened. Because effectively, if there'd been an equal amount of matter and antimatter, at the first few moments of the milliseconds of the Big Bang, they would have nullified each other. But there was a tiny balance in to the advantage of matter rather than antimatter. And it's why most of the matter in the universe is, in fact, matter rather than antimatter. Mm. And then whenever I discuss antimatter, people turn around and say, no, antimatter is something from science fiction. No, it's not. Positrons, you know, positron, positron emission tomography, PET scans. These are the things that actually we use in medicine. It's antimatter. Wow. Now, This then gets very intriguing now because there are friends of mine that I work with who can get out that go out of the body that do lucid dreaming and do OBEs. And you better ask them to look into mirrors. Exactly. Now, this is what we're going to do here. Now, uh, one friend of mine is going to be absolutely fascinated by this. It's it's a young lady called Samantha Lee Treasure, who is is writing some incredible work about out-of-body experiences and she is testing herself at the moment she's down in south korea 
Mm-hmm. And she, while she's down there because, because of lockdown, mm-hmm. she's having some intense OBEs and experiences. And what I will do is suggest to her that next time she's in an OBE experience that she looks in a mirror. Because mm-hmm. I know that this whole mirror thing really, you know, links – I'm sure that you, what you've got – you've touched upon here is something of profound importance. Really, really profound. Yeah, in magical tradition, they are very central because we have uh, we have matter that reflects total light, which is not normal behavior for matter. But the thing is, if it's biophotonic light, as you say, then everything should be a negative in an OBA. But it isn't. But it isn't. But when it's you look in a mirror, mirror. yeah, because then the mirror is reflecting back the photons, which ordinarily the what they wouldn't, you know, the ordinarily. It's not reflected back in the same way a mirror does because a mirror inverts, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, again, one of the things that a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that the photons that you see in a mirror, the reflection you see in a mirror, the photons that are coming off the mirror are not the photons that left your body. Mm. The photons that hit the mirror then agitate the atoms and the surface of the atoms in the mirror to make the electrons and the periphery edges of the, 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 the each atom, the photon is absorbed by the electron in the atom, which then emits another photon out towards you. Yeah, it's, it's, it, to, to dumb it down, it's a translation of energy. It's not correct transference. Yeah. So the transference that must be taking place here must be very interesting. I think you've touched upon something here quite phenomenal. Quite phenomenal. Yeah, but uh, it's it's amazing that nobody has talked about that before. No, I I, I am uh, astonished. I didn't either. I mean, it just happened, right? So no, it's something we need to now. Um, I have an extensive group of people who are OBE and lucid dreamers. Mm. We could really test this out. That would be great. Because normally, don't they? They say, "Look at your hands." Yeah, yeah. To become lucid. Yeah, that's a normal. But looking in mirrors is a, and of course mirrors are so strange. I mean, one of my favourite writers is Jorge Borges, ah. the Argentinian writer. Yeah, yeah. And of course, and the best writer for this. God, you're really stimulating my past here. There's a, <laughs> there's a guy called Wagua, Agua Rampo, who was God. I don't know how, how my brain works sometimes. I only read one story by this. Uh, Edgar Rampo. He called himself Edgar Rampo, which wasn't his real name. Because he was trying to call himself Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, right. And he Japanized the pronunciation yeah. <laughs> and he became Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. And he wrote an amazing short story called The Hell of Mirrors. Oh, wow. And in The Hell of Mirrors, it's somebody who places themselves inside a sealed box uh-huh. that's mirrored all the way around. Right. And there's a form of illumination that doesn't blind you. You don't get Olber's paradox where there should be bright light everywhere. Right. And he goes insane. Right. Now, again, what is it about mirrors that are interesting? Now, for instance, a mirror inver- sort of puts your image backwards and forwards, doesn't it? It, yeah. in- it, it inverts your it, it touch your image from right to left, left to right, but it doesn't invert it up and down. No. And it should. And again, there was a guy called Richard L. Gregory, who was a world's expert on vision. Ah, uh, the guy and who he- made uh, binoculars that turned everything upside down? 
Uh, no, I don't think he might have been. Um, I can't because say. Because the, the, there was uh, this guy who did that. And what happened, uh, this is mainstream, you can Google this. Yeah, he writes it, it writes it up, doesn't it, uh, eventually? Yeah, we correct it in the brain, right? We correct it. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is here that why it doesn't do it the other way around. Yeah. And it seems that the brain overrides that. Now, could the actual image be both inverted and reversed at the same time? But does it mean that when we encounter Mirrors, because the, as, as I think Borges said, mirrors are the, the source of the devil because they multiply everything, which is going back to the many worlds interpretation, isn't it? Yeah, they, they, they show us eternity, actually, two mirrors next to each other. Yeah. That's true eternity. And it goes right down, doesn't it, to the point where the photons break down, yeah. you know. So, and, and another thing is that if you uh, watch the mirror and you uh, self-correct it, then uh, gravity has to have something to do with that. Yes. Has to be gravity, right? Or otherwise, why would we bother about uh, up and down? Why would we correct up and down? I can see why we wouldn't correct the inverse thing, because it says no practical difference. I'm left-handed, right? Yeah. <laughs> it didn't even correct that. But... Up-down has to be uh, some energy that interferes and makes it. Because what happened in this experiment with the Google guy is that uh, when he removed them, as you know, but maybe not all the listeners know, then he panicked because he kept seeing things upside down. Good Lord. But fortunately for him, after a while, I don't know, maybe days, I don't know, mm. it self-corrected back again. Wow. And another thing that's stimulating my thoughts here is, of course, one of the greatest mysteries of the Turin Shroud. Right. Is how the Turin Shroud, not, I'm not suggesting that it was what they claim it to be, but there is still a great mystery. No, they say it was a photography, right? Yeah, there was a photography because it's, it's a negative. If you take the Turin Shroud and you put, take a photograph of, uh, as a negative, you see the image. Right. right. Now, could there be a linkage here in some way? I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking aloud here, but, you know, this is, you've touched upon something of, you know, sometimes where somebody says something and your brain starts going <laughs> 10 to the dozen thinking of the implications of this. Triggers. And my brain has just gone into overspin. Yeah, but this, this needs overspin. time. This needs analysis. This needs experiments. Yeah. It does. It does. But may, maybe Sam Treasure can pick up on this for us. Yeah, we'll see. She needs to be a guest on your show. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll give all those names and you have to keep me updated on this particular thing because I have a personal vested interest in, mm. in learning the results, right? So just for that. But okay, we can wind down now. I want us uh, finally, I mean, we have been through your books and, and, and we make a more orderly exit about that. But just I want a couple of definitions from you before I let you go. Okay. We've mentioned the words egregore. I'd like you to... to uh, just give your understanding of that too, because we never uh, indulged the listeners and did that. We didn't, did we? But there's one more thing, and that's I also want you to talk about melatonin. Okay. Because I heard very interesting, and that's you know pineal gland. If that has sight abilities, maybe maybe that's activated in OBE. Oh, who knows? But we can get back to oh, that. Oh yeah, no, I think I think that's highly likely. Let's let's focus in first on the pineal gland and yep. the role of melatonin. Okay. The the pineal gland is a, a fascinating structure and the sense that there's an awful lot of new age wacko stuff about the pineal gland yeah. but let's really do the neurology let's do the physiology of it and what exactly it's there to do the pineal gland effectively is there to to create um an enzyme known as melatonin and what melatonin is it's the substance that makes you go to sleep 
Now, in order for the pineal gland to be able to, well, let's go back a little bit further. The pineal gland is fairly unique in the sense that it is not bilateral within the brain. You'll have two amygdalae, you have two hippocampi and everything else. And of course, you have two hemispheres. But there's in everybody's brain, there is only a singular pineal gland just like there's only a singular pituitary gland. Mm. And this intrigued people and has done through history. And in fact, Descartes considered it was the location of the soul. Mm. But then there is something stranger about it because inside it is something called pineal sand. And these are um, crystals. Now, it's been discovered that the crystals inside the pineal gland are piezoelectric, which effectively means they can generate their own electric fields. Because, you know, if you if you piezoelectricity effectively is if you crush a, a quartz crystal, mm. you can create electricity. Mm. OK, so that's the first thing that's interesting. But it's then what the pineal gland does. And the reason it's located where it is in the brain is that it has to sit in a particular location directly above the optic nerve. Mm. So when you are looking out of your eyes, light then hits your retina, converts it into an electric signal, which then sends it to the the optic, uh, the um, the visual cortex at the back of the brain. In doing so, the the light the, the the signal travels down the optic nerve, or travels down the two optic nerves from the left and right eye. These two optic nerves cross at a place called the optic chiasma. And they cross so they feed different sides of the brain. The place they cross, the pineal gland, sits directly above that crossing point. The reason it does that is that it's supposed to be able to sense whether electrical signals or light signals are going down the optic nerve. And by doing so, it knows whether it's going dark outside. Mm. And when it realizes it's going dark, it thinks to itself, I now have to create melatonin to make my subject go to sleep, which is what it does. Okay. Now, there are some interesting things about the pineal gland. The one that is most important is with all the areas of the brain and the blood flow, there is more blood flow around the pineal gland than any other organ in the body. Wow. That has to be of significance. And why? Okay. Now let's go back. Let's go back to the baby in the womb. Okay. The embryo in the womb. At the 49th day of gestation, that is 49 days from when the baby first starts, something very curious happens within the embryo. Now, 49th day of gestation is profound importance for esoteric traditions, particularly Bon Buddhism, which is the Buddhism of Tibet. That is the point they believe that the soul enters the body on the 49th day of gestation. So, again, that has to be more than coincidence. Mm. Okay. So, what happens at that point is at the back of the throat of the embryo is a, a body called the epiphysis. The epiphysis effectively then at the 49th point of gestation starts to move from the back of the throat up into the center of the brain. As it does so, it splits into two glands, the pineal gland and the pituitary gland. <gasps> While it does so, it leaves something called the Rathke cleft, R-A-T-H-K-E, Rathke, and it's the cleft. Or the, 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 it, by a cleft, it's like a, a, a little channel that runs down. Mm -hmm. Now, doing research, and particularly the research that's being done by an associate of mine called Beach Barrett, who's an associate of Rick Strassman, the guy that wrote DMT, the spirit molecule. 
Okay. Yeah, I was waiting for DMT because we know pineal gland also is involved in that, right? This is where I'm leading okay, to. Okay. Okay. Because we know that you can synthesize mm. that uh, melatonin and DMT and DMT dimethyltryptamine are very similar molecules, mm-hmm. and you can synthesize from melatonin DMT or dimethyltryptamine. Mm. Now, this is intriguing because this suggests that the pineal gland may create dimethyltryptamine. Now, we know that dimethyltryptamine, the most powerful hallucinogenic substance known to man, well, it isn't actually 5-MeO-DMT is, but we probably won't have the time to talk about that. But DMT is a very powerful entheogen, and it's called entheogen quite precisely. Entheogen means to discover the God within. Ah, right, right. Entheogen in Greek means God within. Okay. And it explodes when we die, right? Right, correct. Now, can we just go back very quickly to the process that takes place? Mm. The There has been long argued that, well, we know that DMT is found in the stomach, it's found in the liver, it's found in the cere- uh, the spinocerebral fluid, but until recently, it's never been discovered in the brain. Hmm. Okay, mm. and the big argument is that it cannot be anything significant because it's never been discovered in the brain well breaking news 2017 a group of researchers under the leadership of a lady called jimo borgigin at the university of michigan for the first time discovered dmt in the brain of live mammals rats okay Mm. now they study rats because the 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 actual morphology of the brain and and the structure of the brain and the way the rat's brain functions is very similar to the human brain Mm. now by discovering dmt in the brain uh, and the pineal gland leads to two questions either the dmt was created in the pineal gland of those rats or it entered from somewhere else the question is were Probably not. It looks like it was synthesized because it's logical because of the similarity with DMT. Hmm. Beach Barrett calls endogenously generated DMT metatonin, yeah. not melatonin, okay. meta yeah, yeah. of the above. <laughs> yeah, Great yeah. idea, isn't it? Metatonin. What a wonderful yeah. description. And metatonin is endogenous DMT. Now, this would explain one great mystery of neurology, and it's something called the trace amine associated receptor sites in the brain. These are receptor sites that were discovered by a thing called, I think it was Arnold Ruho discovered it. Mm -hmm. And what's strange about these things is they don't seem to work with any receptor, with any neurotransmitters in the brain. They they now know which neurotransmitter these trace amine associated receptor sites work with. It's DMT. Mm. So suddenly there's evidence that DMT is a neurotransmitter. These are chemicals that communicate across the brain via the synapses. Now, if DMT is a neurotransmitter, we've evolved in order for our brains to work with DMT. Now, if this is the case, when Rick Strassman argued that DMT may be our reality modulator, he's right. Hmm. And I would argue that it's DMT that creates out-of-body experiences, creates uh, lucid dreaming, but most importantly, creates the near-death experience. And Triggers for... or creates? There's a nuanced difference. Yeah, that's an easy one. I, I, Yeah, it's an interesting one whether it triggers or creates. Now, if DMT is our reality modulator, in that it, it is the substance that actually creates and f- in facilitates in some way our accessing of 
the the um higher vibrations higher frequencies yeah the higher vibrations or the the zero point field and of mm. course we know from the work of Stuart Hammerhoff and Roger Penrose with the orchestrated objective reduction model where they argue that information is brought up by the microtubules within the bre- within the, the the structures remember i mentioned microtubules were destroyed by the amyloid plaques when we first started so we've always come around full circle now in the sense that the amyloid plaques somehow facilitate the opening of the doors of perception. Now, let's just take this slightly further now and say that if Ork, Ork O.R., the Hammerhoff Penrose. Now, Roger Hammerhoff, Hammerhoff is professor of anesthesiology at the University of New Mexico. The reason he was interested in this was nobody understands how um, full anesthetic works, total anesthetic. Mm. They don't know why it makes consciousness disappear. Mm. They know which chemicals do it, but they don't know why. They still mm. don't. Mm. And Hammerhoff believes it's because it cuts off our ability to actually get information from the information field, maybe from the zero point field. Mm. where information lies it cuts us off it stops our signals taking through now could this be that the zero point field draws up now what is interesting about microtubules is and get this microtubules fire off from both sides of themselves single photons of light internal light biophotons and these biophotons when they interfere with each other cause interference patterns Mm -hmm. interference patterns that are identical to the interference patterns that create holograms Mm -hmm. now we have tens of trillions of microtubules in our brains could it be that those trillions of microtubules all work collectively to create a hologram and that hologram is the brain The brain in turn then interfaces with the greater hologram, which is the holographic universe. Mm. So we have a hologram generating and working with a hologram. And again, but very quickly, this then joins together the work of two great researchers, David Bohm, who I talked about earlier, who argued that the universe was holographic, and a guy called Carl Pribram, who was professor of psychology at the University of Georgetown. And Pribram, well, well, hang on, wasn't he involved in parapsychological research? He was indeed. Carl yeah. Pribram was. Mm. Now, Carl Pribram argued that the brain works on holographic principles. It does so, and in which case, and again, I'm the only writer that's joining these dots together, by the way, mm. is that there is something in the brain called the calcium, the ion calcium wave. And it seems to explain within the brain some of the great mysteries of the brain. And one of them, and check this up if you want, you'd find essentially if you don't already know of it, and if you don't, maybe your listeners don't, it's called the binding problem. It's why we, why we have a feeling of simultaneity of the external world. Because different parts of the brain are processing different parts of information from your senses at different times. Because, of course, the signals take time to get from your ears, from your eyes, from the tactile feedback of your fingers to that your the, the prior process thing where, where we know what our position is, where our body is positioned in space. All these work in different parts of the brain. And yet we know that they communicate instantaneously. I suggest that the brain works on non-local principles, just like the principles we were talking about before in terms of uh, non-locality. And the way in which subatomic particles can communicate non-locally. The brain works non-locally. 
And I think that if I can put this, pull this all together, which I'm planning in my new book, I think I can create a model that will create and tell us how the brain functions, wow. how the brain functions non-holographically and the way in which both Pen Penrose, Hammerhoff, Bohm, Pribram were all right. Yeah, They were all tweaking around the little bits, and all they need to do is to be put together. And this is why my new book is actually going to be called Cheating the Ferryman, Welcome to the U-verse. <laughs> but, you know, uh, not to take anything away from your uh, pioneer uh, work here, but in a way you have it easy, because the problem today is that science has become uh, geeks and nerds who specializes and specializes and yeah. specializes, and nobody cares about the unified field theory. So all the great revolutionary discoveries they're doing is just floating there like sitting ducks just waiting mm -hmm. for someone very come, good analogy you know yes. putting it together like you're doing well it's so, one of these things i call it the silo science yeah exactly you know yeah. and they're all in their own little silos yes and none of them are communicating with each other no the, the cosmologists are not talking to the neurologists who are not talking to the microbotanists and even if they did they wouldn't even understand each other it's become so esoteric no, yeah no they wouldn't and they they don't invest the time Because what happens, my friends who have got PhDs in sciences, mm. one of my friends who's got a PhD in science, proudly announces he's never read a book outside of his own specialist area <laughs> right, right, right. for 30, 40 years. There you go. And he's proud of it. Mm. This is the thing. He's proud of it. Mm. Whereas, of course, where you have independent thinkers, but people who are attuned to the sciences, like myself, can join the dots because we're not restricted. I'm not restricted by any form of, of um, you know, sort of controlled by any university at all. You know, I've, I've been approached. They want me to do my PhD on the back of my research. You know, mm -hmm. I already have a, a virtual open opportunity to do my PhD at any time I want, mm. but it's whether I'm going to bother. Yeah. Because, again, at my age, what's the point of having a doctorate? You know? Well, there is one point, and that is it can work as a key to to be listened to by certain sectarian dogmatists. That's the thing. Mm. It, could, it, it can make it easier within certain academics. Well, no, no they, tend to, they tend to then push you out because they say, oh, you've got a PhD in parapsychology. It's not a real PhD. Right, right. Yeah, of course. And they still, they, kill, they still compartmentalize you. And yep. there is still the argument that academics of any persuasion who show any interest in matters esoteric very quickly lose their credibility. I'll give an example of this. There's a UK one. Well, now after Roger, after Stu, Roger Penrose recently got the Nobel Prize, the guy that worked on ORCOR with, with Stuart Hammerhoff, which is really great news. Mm. But up until then, I think the only living Nobel Prize winner in physics um, is um, a guy called uh, Brian Josephson. And Josephson won his Nobel Prize in physics for something, inventing something called the Josephson junctions, which is something to do with quantum physics. Brian Josephson, a few years ago, the British government were going to bring out stamps. And in the stamps, they were going to have heads of um, and references to living Nobel Prize winners in the UK. Josephson was denied being on the stamp initially, and I still don't know whether he ended up in the stamp because I'm not sure if he did or he didn't, but he denied it because he was interested in telepathy yeah, and go. parapsychology. Yeah. Mm. That is disgusting, mm. Mm. but it shows scientism because it's not science anymore. It's scientism. 
Yeah, we've had show on scientism. Everybody listening know know all about this. Good. We don't need, you know, actually we don't need to use so much time beating up on them because we have a series of shows beating up on them. <laughs> so it just takes away from our uh, valuable time. I, I like to throw in two quick corroborations. Okay, one is that uh, as far as the pineal gland goes, in some animals it's active in cyclical and seasonal changes, and like like the color of the feather or the fur reproduces winter dwelling, migration. But we also know that birds orient themselves after Mm. heavenly uh, objects and they can directly sense the sun and the stars' high-frequent vibrations. And Mm. they kind of read or follow the grid, uh, if that's the English word, of the uh, magnetic streams. So they obviously use the pineal gland for something to do with kind of sensing or sight. It's again the piezoelectricity, they think. Yeah, you know, but um, but how do you explain? I mean, Gurdjieff, who is uh, yeah. one, yeah, he said that if you don't use the pineal gland, because he argued not alone, of course, he took it from ancient traditions, but he said that it's central, it's key in your working towards enlightenment. And people who do not activate it, who do not use it, mm-hmm. he said that when they die, uh, I'm assuming from from age, not. <laughs> by being run over by a car, then you will see that it has been calcinated. It's become calcium. Yeah. And you man- that's, uh, I remember because you mentioned it. Yes. Were you aware of uh, this uh, law or what I should call yes, it? I, yes, I was. And I, I'm aware of the work people are doing about calcification of okay. the pineal gland. And I think that probably there, there is this mileage in that. And of course, I would also then push upon, of course, Gurdjieff and of course, his great associate, uh, Peter Ospensky. Yeah, yeah. And Ospensky's work, because, of course, if you you read Ospensky, uh, you will find great parallels with my own work, because, of course, Peter Ospensky was a great believer in the eternal return and the eternal recurrence. And indeed, um, an associate of mine, Gary Lackman, um, has written a book on Ospensky. And, of course, Ospensky spent the last few months of his life traveling around you the uk and europe trying to stimulate his memories of the last time he lived this life and again i will give a final reference here because again i wrote a book on the english english novelist and uh, playwright jb Priestley, and one of jb Priestley's plays have, have i i have been here before is actually based directly on ospensky's theory of the eternal return there is a character in that play called dr gertler and gertler is based upon ospensky um, so there's nice. some interesting references here. Yeah. And I also w- want to say that in some fishes and reptiles, the epiphyse uh, becomes mm-hmm. like a pineal eye. Yeah. And if you look at uh, Theosophy, who also rips off ancient traditions, they say that ancient man and, and you know, uh, fishes and reptiles are mm-hmm. like ancient uh, mammals, organisms. Mm-hmm. So ancient man had this so-called third eye mm-hmm. where they used it to, you know, look into the astral world that's that's what we get from the traditions and now research such as what you're pointing out is kind of confirming these where it is and and for instance the tutora which is a lizard that's found in islands off new zealand you know it has a third eye which actually sits on on the front on the the front of its face right so clearly this is it you know it's more than just the idea of the third eye it does have resonance to it and again what you were saying there reminds me of i don't know if you've ever taken the opportunity i don't think anybody probably read it in its entirety uh but philip k dick's uh theophany 
uh, not theophany, his um, exegesis, mm. um, where it was the, all his notes that were collected together over the years. And there's some extraordinary diagrams in the of entities he felt that he he had interfaced with in out-of-body experiences and virtual other things and again they look very like the aliens we we were discussing earlier on grays but on top of that some of them have a third eye uh, so now we're back okay the the snake just bit its own tail because this is where we <laughs> began and this is where i thought we were discussed today but you can come back for a show on it but it reminds me of one unanswered uh, question and that is that if there are such creatures if these creatures are not just you know archetype then we think it's like it just exists in our consciousness, whatever that means. But if we re- look into the reality of vibrations and, and the fact we discussed earlier about photographing creatures in frequencies w- which we can't directly perceive through the limited uh, senses, but we can uh, get help from either tools like machines who can uh, read uh, other frequencies or by entogenes. Uh, out-of-body experience, all that oh, stuff. Totally, totally. Could these creatures then actually be, I wouldn't say physical, but, you know, everything is energy. So could they be real and objective in that sense? Yes. Only we can just read them through our mind because uh, because of the limited senses. And if that's the case, then there's a question of interaction. Uh, can we influence them? How are they influencing us? And I guess we're back to jinns and spirits and, and magic. But the comment... Yeah, this is this is exactly the area that associates of mine are working on at the moment. There is wow. um, a research project taking place at Imperial College in London as we speak, which is official and is legal, whereby there are volunteers who are taking dimethyltryptamine intravenously, going into the DMT world and reporting back what they're experiencing. Um, I have two or three people I know who's doing this, including one friend of mine who has been a previous guest on my shows, um, Dr. Carl, Dr. Carl W. Carl H. Smith. And he was telling me that when he first took the DMT, he found himself in what's called the DMT cage, which is a kind of a location you go to. And he said this entity, this being, came up to him and started prodding him eyeballed him and said you shouldn't be doing this this is not the way you should be doing it he then came to from his dmt dream uh, dmt trip and he turned around to his associates and said that was really weird one of the entities one of the dream entities engaged with me and told me off two weeks later he takes the dmt again goes into the same place the same creature comes over and turned around to him and said i told you last time you shouldn't be doing it this way this is not the way you should be doing it now this clearly shows independent motivations it shows that they have a plan that we are not following. Mm. That there is some, because as Carl said to me, he said, this does not reflect my own intention. So if this was just a projection of my own subconscious, why was it contradicting me? Mm. So clearly there is more interest here. And this is an area myself and two associates of mine are working on. We're planning to recreate uh, the Philip experiment that took place in 1970 in, in Toronto, where we're going to be working to see if we can create an egregore. 
and we are going uh, whoa, to... Wait a minute, what's the gist of that experiment? Uh, okay, oh, if you don't know about it, it was quite fascinating. It was, it was an experiment by a group of people who were interested in seances. They were, they were academics, or they were, they were paranormal researchers, but not necessarily believers in seances. But they were quite interested about the manifestations that took place during seance conditions. So what they did was they got together and they decided that they would create a totally mythical person historically and they created somebody they called philip aylesford and philip was uh, a, uh, they created the story that he was a young catholic nobleman who lived in the midlands in england in warwickshire near kenilworth and they based his life on a real castle in that area they they created his lifestyle and his life and they said that he was in a loveless marriage and one day he was going out and he met a beautiful gypsy girl who he fell in love with. He then was found out with this affair and he committed suicide by throwing himself off the battlements of the castle. They then created this whole backstory and then started to try to really believe that he existed. Now, what is fascinating about this was initially they had no success, but then they started to act childlike. While they were in their group, they started to sing and be silly and act like children, which is, again, what I would say is what you need to do because you get into the childlike mm. state where you open up the doors of perception to bring yourself into the way children think. They then started to manifest him. They managed to, to – the table wrap started. The messages started coming through from Philip. Not only that, they had a table that levitated. Oh. Not only did they have the table that levitated, but they reproduced the levitation of the table on a TV program on Canadian television in the early 1970s. Now, this was extraordinary. What we're trying to do is to take this experiment and update it with 21st century technology. Hmm. We're going to be creating and I don't want to be telling you what tech, what we're going to be using exactly because we need because sure, we're planning sure. to write a paper on this. Mm -hmm. But we have been speaking to a series of research, Canadian researchers, some of whom were involved in the test in the, in the case. Hmm. And what I'm planning to do is now involve people that I know who were involved in the skull experiment which took place in the, the late 19, early 1990s, I think it was, in Norfolk in the UK. Sorry, you have to fill us in on that too. Okay, the Skull Experiment was intriguing. Again, it was a group of people that got together and managed to communicate with a group of individuals that were elsewhere located in the universe who were trying to communicate with us here. And they claim that they managed to have caused teleports, they managed to get things that appeared from nowhere. They managed to have lights moving around the room. Now, one of my future guests on my own podcast, I'm hoping is going to be, I call Nick Kyle. And Nick Kyle was the top man in the Scottish Society for Psychical Research who witnessed a lot of these events taking place. Now, if we can get some of the guys from the Skull Experiment involved in our work, we're suddenly really cooking on gas is a term mm. I use a lot mm. because it means we're, we, we are really pushing the, pushing the envelope here of what can be done realistically, but we're going to be doing it under totally controlled conditions. Good. We're going to create one entity with one group of people and then have another group of people who won't know the other group of people located in a different part of the country to see if they can pick up Hmm. The messages that are being sent from the first group, in which case then we can we can prove telepathy, we can prove non-local communication. 
I totally approve the mechanism of this, but uh, what was the name of that researcher you told me about who used to be a Catholic? Who the, his name? His name is um, uh, Paul Eno, and he called these spirits dismissively. He called them l- not liars, but what did he say about them? Oh, oh yes, no, he called them um, psychic vampires. Um, yeah, vampires. Psychic or- vampires. There you go. So as long as you guys are not as naive as some of the other exactly. researchers and the channelers believing everything these things tell you, correct? Because that may be rubbish. From a well, this, to- no, we are very aware of this, and one of okay. the things as part of our research is we've been researching um, a group of things. There was a very famous book called The Hungry Ghosts. Mm-hmm. And in The Hungry Ghosts, it was a young researcher who followed the route in Canada of working with mediums and believing what the spirits were telling him. Now, I believe a lot of these spirits are egregorials and they're egregorials that can't be trusted. And this is why he called them hungry spirits, because this is a term from Buddhism. These are disincarnate entities that are hungry and they're hungry for attention. Yeah. Hang on. In Buddhism, it's called um, uh, tulpa. Is that it? No, tulpa is, is something different. But again, in my book, I talk about tulpas and the and we believe these are tulpas right. in the same way that Alexandra Neal, the, the Belgian researcher in the 1920s, created a little monk, which they which followed them around for a time. And then it became very malevolent and they had to destroy it. Yeah. And of course, Dawn Fortune, Dawn Fortune did the same. She's a magician of... Uh, Dion Fortune. Interestingly yeah. enough, one of the groups that really love my work are the Servants of the Light. Right. And right. the Servants of the Light were the esoteric group that came from the work of Dion True. Fortune and Israel Regardi. And, and she created a creature like this out of negative emotions, jealousy and rage. You can read about it in her autobiography. Interesting. And, uh, and it I started to live its own life and it started to hurt the other people in the mystery school. Wow. Uh, and she had to, she was lying in bed and she had to call it back and she had to drag it by its uh, cord, you know, the navel cord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The silver cord. And uh, it was it's taken shape of a wolf and it was fighting for its life. Mm. And when it, she finally... Uh, reintegrated it she was overwhelmed with feelings of hatred jealousy bitterness all this stuff that had lied behind not this strong but it had lied behind the intention when she first created it so this was in her youth when she was still you know she, she was a novice magician so she didn't have the wits to so, God, so she, this is this is intriguing yeah. so this would have been happening in rose on sea in north wales because that's where she was born and brought up so right very intriguing. Now, again, um, touching upon this, Pauline, Pauline, the term we were looking for there were parasites. Right. And again, you know, the thing is about these entities, you know, that what exactly are they? Because in the book, you probably know I have a whole section on Edmund, Edwin Kelly and um, Dr. John Dee. Mm. And the um, Enochian. the Enochian magic yeah. mm. and how they applied Enochian language to create entities using, again, the Book of Enoch, which, of course, I referenced earlier on with regard to the Apocryphal Gospels. And, of course, um, one, of my, one of my associates is uh, a young Ethiopian researcher who, you know, is, who knows the Book of Enoch very, very well. Mm. And, of course, the entities there, you know, were then coming back, you know, what, what was going on with, with John Dee, these entities that seemed to, to come forward. And then we come right full circle to Elisa Crowley and Awas and the other entities that he brought about or claimed to have brought about. These things can be dangerous. We are very sensitively aware of this and we are taking advice 
from from occultists and everything else to make sure that we don't fall foul of anything so we are taking care mm. but whatever we, we discover it's very very it's going to be very very exciting i'll i'll, I'll throw an uh, advice by proxy from esoterica that when one deals with egregores there is you know the ancient mystery schools of light not not the dark mm. stuff but mm. the, those of light they said that they didn't want to do low magic only theurgy why theurgy because they said if you do divine magic first of you you're following the laws of nature you, you you're just doing god's bidding that's number one that's the moral aspect mm. but they said if you use the right symbols and with the right intentions mm. then you can reach uh, frequencies to use a modern language frequencies that are higher than these lower astral entities if you like where you can reach the real archetypes of nature of existence what they call the gods which is mm. uh, which is obviously a metaphor anyway and then you can or plato's forms yeah you know? this is plato yeah. so so there is a possibility to reach at the highest level of existence and get uh, you know divine impulses into this world well which is what we why we use the term entheogen isn't it you know the god within again the point we were making yeah it's a wonderful term and and of course the person that we must reference here of course is somebody we were talking about earlier on mark stavish and his incredible work with egregorials and Absolutely. his incredible writings yep. you know yep. and the mystery schools they even uh, worked they said that when you become initiated you contribute to the egregore of the school Mm. And when you die, then um, you, uh, you 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 kind of fuse with the egregore. So they said that that's another reason they had very high ethical preferences because if people were full of bad karma, problems, alcohols, whatever, then you're dragging everyone down. Mm. But if you get good people to join, then you're kind of elevating the group energy. Which is why initiations into a group were so important. This is why it was important. Mm. One thing is the initiations for your own development, but when you belong to a group, you had to pick. And I say this to my listeners, to those of you who are dabble in occultism, be very, very wary. Even these pseudo theater occult groups, without knowing it, they are interacting with egregores and creating egregores. And just watch the people before you join. Mm-hmm. Do you want to... Because they are vampires, a negative group where everybody has negative energy. They want good people because they are like vampires. They can take in a good person and then they can collectively elevate themselves based on that person. That's parasitic. You understand? That's excellent advice. Yes, yes. Mm. Okay, uh, Anthony, I think uh, we'll let that advice be the last word for today. I think that's a perfect ending to an absolutely phenomenal discussion. But uh, uh, throw out the name of your podcast there. I didn't even know you had one. Let's hear it. Yeah, okay. um, Every every Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. UK time, I go out live on Facebook. Okay, and it's on my Facebook site. It's just Anthony Peak. You will find me. And I'm going to be inviting you as a guest in the future. Jesus, live? It's live. (laughs) Yeah, it's live. Uh, it's it's initially live, and then I I you I then use the recording because we go out on Zoom, and I then upload the Zoom recording onto my um my U- my YouTube page, my mm. YouTube site, um which I'll um I can't remember the posting of the top. I think it's called um 
I think it's called it Vladium 54. But again, if you just go look for Anthony Peak on YouTube, you'll find yeah, it. Find it. Okay. And we are doing those every week. Now, on top of that, every month, now that's called InCon, um, in conversation, basically. Mm. Then there is something else I know called Anthony Peak Consciousness Hour. And that's been going on now for the last seven or eight years. Um, only recently as I've uploaded a lot of the original recordings onto the, onto my YouTube site, because tragically my original producer died tragically last summer. Um, she was only in her early forties, uh, died suddenly, which is quite awful. Um, a lady called, uh, Radia du Nunez, who was very interesting lady. She was Puerto Rican, uh, na- uh, Puerto Rican with native American blood and also, uh, African mm. background as well. So she was a fa- she she used to add some fascinating things to it. But sadly she died and now I'm doing the shows with another good friend of mine called Sarah James um who is very into esoteric schools and Sarah um does a lot of lucid dreaming training. Mm. She's quite a fascinating lady. Um and Sarah will be involved if we do the event in Greece. Um now that goes out live again on the second Sunday of every month. Um, and again, some of the guests we have there, it's much more formal and it's an interview. It's a formal interview. And I, I have on there already some of the world's top academics in this subject. And I mean, seriously, top academics, um, the people that are really pushing the envelope out because more and more people from academia are being attracted to my work. Mm. And that's wonderful. And, and people are starting to realize that there is validity in what I'm doing and what I'm saying has power um so please guys I, I know you've been interviewed by alex a skeptical but have you seen oh, yeah. his especially the oldest of his guest list of guests it's it's who's who oh it's wonderful within academia of this have, kind of research alex is wonderful alex is i had a wonderful conversation with him you know he's just such a, a lively yeah. interesting and interested man you know he's yeah. terrific um the other thing that people if you're interested if my website is anthonypeak.com if you're interested in my books, you can get them in bookshops. The new Is the Life After Death, which I've just posted about on Facebook, literally got the cover through in the break between yeah. our two sessions here. Yeah. Um, that will be reissued into bookshops across the world, definitely within the English-speaking world in the in, in April. So you can pick up a copy of that. Mm. Um, also, all my other books are available. Uh, three of my books are available on Audible, where I'm reading them. They're on Kindle. Uh, they're on Amazon. The, the, you can get them everywhere. So check. They're even in Braille, some of them. So check them out and join in with my work. Join me on Facebook. I'm up to my 5,000 friends so what's the group called there uh it's just the anthony peak site okay it's again on the anthony so on anthony peak this is where we all link up and everything else but each of my books has its own facebook page as well oh, okay. um, if you want to just focus in on those if you want to discuss the books though you can discuss them either on the main page but link with others as i say there's five thousand friends and there's about approaching six thousand uh, followers I'll join. so by all means follow me because it's a huge group and it's completely international and no no documentaries no movies oh god yeah yeah just go on to just i mean for instance i featured on french television um a few years ago on a documentary on philip k dick um if you go on but, but what about you making some um working on it at the moment i've got a number of filmmakers who were very keen to make documentaries with me at the moment, you know, I'm very keen to do that. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a matter of getting it right. 
Um, And of course, with lockdown, that is very difficult. But no, the filmmakers are interested in doing documentaries. And I think that's the way forward. We're planning to film the Greek event. And there's some very talented filmmakers that want to work with me on that. Mm. Um, So watch this space. Things are really developing rapidly at the moment. And And I have to say that my discussion with you has has really been one of the best I've done. Uh, We've gone into areas that I normally don't go into. And you got got it straight away. And I think this is going to be one of the the top interviews I've done. And this is going to be the ones I'm going to be pointing people in the direction of (laughs) for the people who really want to understand in greater detail and go right down the rabbit hole. Yeah, what an honor. I, I must admit I've heard it before from some guests in private, but thank you for, for giving me that shout out. No, it's been very, wonderful. wonderful. And yeah, and I've discovered you. So this bromance is uh, reciprocal. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'll, I'll join all your sites and we'll take it from there. Good, okay, excellent. Yeah, because you know there's a huge censorship uh, going on, right? Not just against like stuff that people would agree you should ban, but they're taking everything now. Left, right, it's just a matter of time before they will come for just harmless UFO shows and stuff like that. So it's getting hard. Yes, I'm I'm, I'm waiting there as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm game. Okay, well, it's wonderful chatting to you. I'll be posting something about this this evening. Um, When will it, when's it, when's it going to be posted? That's another thing. We have like uh, a buffer of 10 unreleased shows. It's one in, one out. So we're far behind. So give me some time. I'm super hectic right now. Yeah, well, I can imagine. So I'd, I'd have to ask you to indulge that. Oh, totally. But probably in a three months or so out to the public. Good. That will build up the anticipation, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, I need to get you back in the future. Oh, of course. No, of course. I'd love to. Yes, please. I'd love to. I look forward to it. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Okay, Wonderful I'll... stuff. Great to talk to you. So thank you thank very you much for coming on the forum. And you, Al. Thank you very much. See you later, then. Okay, then. Okay, then. Speak to you soon. All the best. Okay, okay thanks. thanks. Yeah. Bye. 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 And that's our show today. I'm going to read you some excerpts on uh, Gregores because I think that's the most unclear term for most of you listening. Avatar is obviously a well-established term now, but uh, to clarify, the ancient term of Avatar means an advanced player of the game, okay? <laughs> uh, according to the model of paradigm we applied today. So it would be like these masters who choose to incarnate as human and not just automatically reincarnate rather than moving on away from the game or who knows to a higher game and then you have the modern usage of the term which of course is um, as the character within the game which to you listening would be you your ego in your body and No explanation is needed for the term daimon because he gave a very good one, the way he uses it, which would be the player. And I'm assuming most of you would define that as soul, which is a very poor word. Look up the etymology. It doesn't really explain anything other than to say that the popular association of the word as some kind of eternal, permanent, divine, from the source, I.D., is a good concept, although I'm not sure soul is the word to cover it. But never mind that, we're going to go into the Gregorius. But before that, I'll say a couple of things. 
First about me and Anthony, I think we can agree that there was a certain chemistry there, at least as far as the conversation today concerns. But it got me thinking that when people share a language, that's actually more important than the ability to consider advanced thoughts. I I know, I know everybody thinks that, oh, if you're very advanced, you can entertain the greatest scenarios, but language is more important. Terminology is more important. Me and Anthony very early discovered that we read much of the same stuff. And as soon as we have that, then we have a common understanding uh, of interpretation and descriptions. And then it makes it so much easier to exchange ideas that are original or at least advanced. Whereas if you lack that language, you're going to spend much more time on clearing up misunderstandings, projections, assumptions. You see this on other levels, just as basic thing as politics. Put a libertarian, for example, and a progressive, I'm using American terms to describe uh, now, and they will completely talk beyond each other. And both of them will try to fight for the same value without realizing that they are talking past each other. I don't have time to go into deeper uh, descriptions of this particular example. Some of you will get it, others won't, but it doesn't matter. The point is, you find this all over. If you want to really discuss with the Jehovah's Witness and reach that person, you need to be an expert in the Bible, their version of the Bible, and then argue with them on that level. When in Rome, do as the Romans. This was uh, an advice of many masters too, that you adjust to the conditions and surroundings around you so that you can actually communicate. Without doing that, we're just hitting each other in the heads with our own limited notions, blind to the other, what goes into the other person and what comes out of the other person. So a good communicator has to take responsibility not just for what he or she throws out, but also what they take in. So it's such an advantage when one shares symbols, language, terminology, and even understanding. And I I believe that's part of what we did today so we could take it further without having talked before me and Alex I've given him a shout out today but you can hear every time we talk we already have behind us a common understanding that we use to stand on to move on to high adepts new guests or guests that doesn't really share my language will be harder spending more time on the meticulous particulars to get some move on and you who are long-time listeners, you who have listened to most of what I do, you're in the same position because you're used to the way I rant. You're used to examples and descriptions I pull out. Even though I may invoke them from many different areas, you've listened to all these different various shows and so you're familiar already. And then it makes it so much easier for you to follow. So it's not that I'm a genius or you're a genius, it's that we already have covered common bases that allows us to move on. No, of course, it helps if you, in addition to that, have the ability to, for example, in this case, abstract thinking. Remember, a trait of psychopathy is that they are not able to do abstract thinking. 
you will rarely find a psychopath who is a master of symbolism, for example. <laughs> and in a way, that's a good protection from the worst among us. Uh, rarely will you find them in advanced spiritual... Uh, you, you may find them mimicking and imitating, uh, you know, on a slogan level, on an image level, but not on an advanced level. Okay, enough said about that. Now, uh, a little practical info, and then I'm going to read you something about egregores. If you are subscribing to a YouTube channel, please check the bell, because the bell has three levels. You may never get uh, notifications. You may get so-called personalized notifications. It's just bullshit. Click on all notifications. You have nothing to lose because you know we do not issue daily shows. So you will not be spammed. In fact, even if you have all notifications, you won't get all notifications. We've established that with many a listener before. So, But it's your best bet to be stay in the loop for when something actually comes out. And it helps us. It helps us to get the higher reach because they're strangling it. We've been frozen on 35,000 on YouTube for a couple of years now. If this was before the rigging of the algorithm, then we would be up to probably closer to 100,000 now because it was supposed to increase exponentially. But you can help out by make sure you're subbing. And of course, if you never, if you listen and you never sub, then you like what you heard, do sub. I promise you, we'll top this many other times in the future. If you are subscribed to our podcast channel, you, first of you'll find us on all podcast platforms, doesn't matter which. And if you are, you know that there's many more shows released there than on YouTube. There's so few people subbing there that... We do pre-releases because it's almost like they're not uh, out to the public yet. <laughs> uh, although we're trying, as you probably noticed, to catch up on YouTube. Actually, by the time you hear this, we may have caught up. But as long as the podcast channel has fewer subscribers than the YouTube channel, we'll continue pre-releasing some shows there at any given time. And of course, if you join our website, you will get at least 10 unreleased shows at any given time. Like Bella keeps reminding you, throw us a buck and you'll get access. Now, egregores. First from Corpus Hermeticum, 16th book. Every kind of creature is sustained and nourished by the sun. As the spiritual world embraces the physical and fills it out with every different kind of forms, so the sun embraces everything in the cosmos, raising up and strengthening all generations, and when they are spent and ebbing away, he receives them back. The choir of spirits, or rather choirs, are placed under the command of the sun. Choirs because there are many different kinds of powers. They are set in formation under the stars and are equal in number to them. Thus arrayed they serve each of the stars. Some of these powers are good and some are evil by nature, that is to say, in their activity. For the essence of a spiritual power is its activity. There are also some who are a mixture of good and evil. All these spirits have been given authority over affairs upon earth and over turbulences there. 
They cause a variety of disorders, both publicly in cities and among nations, but also in the life of individuals, for they shape our souls after themselves and arouse them by residing in our sinews, in our marrows, veins and arteries, and even our brain, penetrating as deep as our very entrails. Through these instruments, God himself creates all this, and all things partake of God, since this is so they are God. Therefore, in creating all things, he creates himself, and he can never cease to create, for he himself never ceases to be. As God has no end, so his handiwork has neither beginning nor end. Now, uh, Mark Stavish says in his book, What is an Egregore? The word Egregore is Greek in origin and is derived from Egregoros, meaning wakeful or watcher. The word is found in the book of Enoch, wherein it is described as an angelic being. The book of Enoch is ascribed to Enoch, the grandfather of Noah, and while Non-canonical, it has attracted some theological and historical interest by the major Jewish and Christian denominations for a section of it known as the Book of the Watchers. This section is thought to have been written around 300 BCE. The only extant version that survives is in the South Semitic language of Giz, originating around the Horn of Africa. While the original text may have been in Hebrew or Aramaic, no complete early text in either language survives. The main themes of this book held in common by many mystics, practitioners of the occult and even Christian fundamentalists, concern 200 fallen angels, their interbreeding with human women, the subsequent creation of a race of giants, Nephilim, whose destruction in the biblical flood receives mention in Genesis and a coming apocalyptic battle between good and evil. Stavish goes on to say, the most commonly used definition is as follows. Autonomous psychic entity composed of and influencing the thoughts of a group of people. However, there is a second definition, an older, more significant and perhaps frightening one. Here an egregore is more than an autonomous entity composed of and influencing the thoughts of a group of people. It is also the home or conduit for a specific psychic intelligence of a non-human nature connecting the invisible dimensions with the material world in which we live. This, in fact, is the true source of power of the ancient cults and the religious magical practicers. Now, Muni Sadhu defined an egregore as a collective entity, such as a nation-state, religions and sects and their adherents, and even minor human organizations. The structure of egregores is similar to that of human beings. They have physical bodies, that is, all the bodies of those who belong to the particular egregore, and also astral and mental ones, the egregore being the sum total of all these elements. Probably the only modern scholar of esoterics who has written about egregores is Dr. Jocelyn Goodwin. Goodwin uh, traces the origin of egregores 
at least in the West, to the ancient Greece and Rome and the intimate relationship that the ancient cult practices had on daily life as well as foreign affairs. This is critical because here we see that every aspect of life has a sacred component to it and that in the proper execution of one's duties, the visible and invisible worlds are kept in harmony. The study of these relationships and their method of implementation became a specialized focus of the priestly class. These rituals and their attendant sacrifices were considered vital to the health of the family, community, city, even the empire, or later the nation. Godwin says, there is an occult concept of the egregore, a term derived from the Greek word for watcher. It is used for an immaterial entity that watches or presides over some earthly affairs or collectivity. The important point is that an egregore is augmented by human belief, ritual and especially by sacrifice. If it is sufficiently nourished by such energies, the egregore can take on a life of its own and appear to be an independent personal divinity with a limited power on behalf of its devotees and an unlimited appetite for further devotion. It is then believed to be an immortal god or goddess, an angel or a daimon. I am suggesting that the rise and fall of nations is intimately bound up with their relations with their gods and that these are real entities, even though they are not the eternal all-powerful beings they are reputed to be. This seems to be a theory worthy of consideration by anyone who can admit that the universe is a very strange place and that there is plenty of room in it for beings bigger than mankind. If such beings exist, it is only prudent to take an account of them. Every civilization in the past has done so after its fashion. Deborah Bravant said, All thoughts, emotions, mindsets, archons, egregores, demons, mogwal or non-physical beings are computer programs that will control your actions if you let them. Gaten de la Forge defines an egregore as a kind of group mind that is created when people consciously come together for a common purpose. David Barretto refers to egregore as a group of spirits with a particular common intention. Besides attributing the term to the energies emanated from groups or spirits, entities of different backgrounds that dedicate themselves to a specific cause may as well form an egregore. Count Jan Potoki refers to the egregores as the most illustrious of fallen angels. And to round this off with an Indian proverb. The gods do not like it when one of their cattle should be free. Thank you for listening, for your support and to my team. I've been your host Al, until my next watch. Be seeing you. number one.